So tonight, uh, or last week, with dependent origination, um, it's a specific study topic, at least. Hopefully not our last time reflecting on the conditional nature of experience. thought we'd uh, focus mostly on how these teachings uh, inform the present moment and create this possibility for stepping off the wheel, as we sometimes say, or uh, abandoning whatever it is the mind is doing that supports the experience of stress. So that's how we want to see this, not as a gradual process, but either the mind is in the mode of creating stress and sustaining stress, mental stress, or it's not. And then the mind experiences experiences the absence of that activity. Now, this helps because it distinguishes, and this can be confusing for us, between the mind creating mental stress and the mind experiencing unpleasant experience. And it it's, can be tricky. The Buddha never said <coughs> that there's a way to live where we'll be free from unpleasant experience. The Buddha instead said that it's possible to be free from suffering. It's possible to be free from the mind resisting or contracting around the experiences that are arising. That's possible. This is from... uh, Christina Feldman's article that I sent out that first week, maybe some of you, hopefully some of you read it. I thought it was a pretty good article. At the very end, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs. In choosing to be aware, we make a leap, which is really about an application of, the, of a path in our lives. Otherwise, mere seeing of the process becomes circular and we continue to circle around. The path is what actually takes us out into a different process. And so that's that's helpful. It's telling us we have to do something different. For things to change, the mind has to do something different. It has to relate differently. Otherwise, it's just more of the same. And, you know, I'm sure you notice when you have some physical pain It's so easy to do what we always do with it, which is try to ignore it or try to fix it. So it's not easy for the mind to imagine something other than that, like to be interested in it, to be welcoming it. And not to let that welcoming of it just be a sneaky strategy to get rid of it. You know, like it has to be an authentic welcoming, an authentic interest. She goes on, she says, Now the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, is not a value judgment in itself. It is simply the portrayal of a way in, of a way in which it is possible to step off a sense of being bound to this wheel of samsara or to the links of dependent origination. It is significant to remember that it doesn't have to be any one link that we step off or that there's only one place where we can get out of this maze. In fact, we can step out of the maze and into something else at any of the lengths. And maybe a better way of saying that is not to think about that we're just inhabiting one link at a time. But it's, you know, the way the Buddha uh, describes our experience, it's like a flashing on. We flash on, and like all of those lengths are enlivened. You know, we have sense contact, we have feeling, there is craving, there is grasping, the becoming, there's birth and death. It's all right there, each moment of existence. And it's just a question if in this moment, the way the mind is, is going to condition the next moment to be the same, or it's going to condition the next moment to be different. Because each moment conditions the next moment. The birth of how it is for me right now has been conditioned by the previous moment. This is why it's so tricky to change, because each moment is being conditioned by the past or the previous moment. 
The well-known Thai meditation master, Buddhadasu, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, describes the path out of suffering as the radiant wheel. It is also called the wheel of understanding or the wheel of awakening, in which the fuel of greed, anger, and delusion, which give us the feeling of being bound to the wheel of samsara, of pain, is replaced by the fuel of wise reflection, ethics, and faith. One portrayal of the alternative wheel is that wise reflection, ethics, and faith lead to gladness of heart and mind, the absence of dwelling and contractedness and proliferation. The gladness is in itself a condition for rapture, a falling in love with awareness. The rapture is a condition for calmness, and calmness is a condition for happiness. Happiness is a condition for concentration. Concentration is a condition for insight. Insight is a condition for disenchantment or letting go, and letting go is a condition for equanimity. The capacity to separate the sense of self from states of experience so that an experience can just be an experience rather than be flavored by an I am-ness of a self. And equanimity in itself is the condition for liberation and the end of suffering. So she just walked us through what I, the handout I passed out last week, which is this uh, description of transcendent origination. Because, as you know, the Buddha always talks about, some of you might have it with you tonight. If you didn't get a copy, I have extras up here. You know, as the Buddha talked about, or talked about anything, he always talks about things in terms of natural processes. So... The fact that we often, most often, experience repeated states of stress, sometimes more stress, sometimes less stress. And in fact, a lot of the moments we consider to be happy moments are just moments that were preceded by moments of stress, and then that stress has fallen away. And so the relative falling away of stress becomes our experience of happiness. It's not actually an absence of stress. It's just that it's less stress. You know, like we're in the kitchen and the refrigerator goes off and we feel a little better about having that humming going on in the background. Or we've been outside and it's cold and we walk in. And then we feel happy being at home because the stress of being cold, the mind's resistance to being cold, is no longer there. And it doesn't matter that there's other resistances or other grasping going on in the mind. That is such a big change that the mind superficially assumes that it's happy to be home and not cold anymore. But that's a, that's a very limited kind of happiness. The happiness we get from um, not, not suffering as much as we were previously. <laughs> This is from Ajahn Sushito, this Western Buddhist monk. He says, The root of ignorance is the illusion of self. Suffering arises through attempting to sustain an identity based on mind-body, based on the five aggregates. So this is work the mind is doing, the sustaining of a sense of self. Another place he says, Dependent origination traces the process whereby suffering is compounded out of ignorance, and consequently suffering is eliminated, or rather not created, with the cessation of ignorance. So suffering is compounded out of ignorance, or out of misperception. And when there is no longer misperception, no longer ignorance. And you can see how that, those points really are useful in practice. I don't know about how it was for you tonight, but for me, you know, being present with my body and just the subtle energy of the mind and body as my primary anchor. It's what the mind naturally is interested in. So I'm just there aware of it. And, uh, you know, it's very common for a sensation or an experience to arise. And right with that experience that's arising, uh, there is the sense that this is a problem. There's like a sense of somebody not liking this or somebody not wanting this to get worse, or somebody wishing this weren't this way. So we have this 
training ground that is so direct, so right here, to learn this lesson. And it doesn't matter how many times we fail, because each time we fail and an experience arises, the mind takes it personally, and taking it personally is the cause for this mental suffering, this mental stress. We can learn something very important, which is this really hurts. It really hurts to take experience personally. And we need to, I mean, we all know that intellectually now, but we have to see it many, many times, very clearly. If we see it really, really clearly, we don't need to see it many, many times. But when our concentration isn't powerful, then we have to see it many, 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 many times that taking the experience personally is unnecessary and suffering. And we begin to uh, learn this art of letting things happen, letting things be, what we call being mindful, where we're, we're not, in, the mind isn't investing in this stance that evaluates things in terms of pleasant and unpleasant, good and bad. We know how to do that, but we don't necessarily have to do that. We don't really need to have opinions about things. I mean, we could easily now, in the space, be evaluating each other. And it would be really stressful. People we'd like to get to know, people we're not that interested in getting to know. It would be a very divisive way to be spending our time here, picking in this way. We could be doing the same about some possession, you know. Should I buy an all-electric car or should I get a Hummer? And, uh, or whatever sort of debate you can have in your mind. And that, just the, just the notion that there's a right and a wrong or a better and a worse is stressful for the mind. So I'm going to go through this uh, chart um, a little bit more specifically. And at the end of this sutta, this discourse on discourse on supporting conditions is one way someone translates the title, or another way uh, Ajahn Tanisaro translates the word prerequisites. Right. So the prerequisites for awakening or for freedom. And at the end of this short sutta or discourse, the Buddha um, talks about this awakening. Excuse me. As a natural process. In the same way that suffering is a natural process, unfolding lawfully. And I think I read this one of the first weeks. It's really beautiful. And it actually, uh, you know, the circle, I told you earlier in the course, it's not exactly clear when this idea of a circle came out, with, whether it was during the time of the Buddha or shortly after the time of the Buddha, where they used that depiction that we studied earlier. But what's clear is that in the discourses of the Buddha, the way they're recorded at least, the Buddha described it not so much as a circular, pro circular process, but more of a natural unfolding in, in this way. He says, just as when the gods pour rain and heavy drops and crash thunder on the upper mountains, the water flowing down along the slopes fills the mountain clefts and rifts and gullies. When the mountain clefts, rifts, and gullies are full, they fill the little ponds. When the little ponds are full, they fill the big lakes. When the big lakes are full, they fill the little rivers. When the little rivers are full, they fill the big rivers. When the big rivers are full, they fill the great ocean. In the same way, fabrications have ignorance as their prerequisite. Consciousness has fabrications as its requisite. Name it form has consciousness as a prerequisite. The six media have name and form as the prerequisite. He keeps going on and on through this and then begins to talk about 
the release, right? Because you get craving and grasping and becoming, birth and death. And that suffering of birth and death then is the cause for faith to arise. So let's go through this. And feel free to ask questions as we go through this chain because the whole point, you know, in every moment, basically, we're experiencing suffering or stress in some way. Which means that in any moment of our experience, there can be this birth of faith or confidence. So instead of reacting to an ordinary moment of stress, just the stress of having a mind and body, a stress of having the sense of being a somebody who wants things one way or, or another way. So even this ordinary stress, not, we don't need to talk about extraordinary difficulties or painful experiences, but just ordinary mental stress, mental resistance, mental grasping. There's a choice, which is to see or know that experience of stress and based on confidence, what we've learned, what we've experienced, this faith that it doesn't have to be this way. This contraction, this contracted state doesn't have to be this way. You know, it's like when we, uh, we've been really up, uh, involved rather in a conversation, maybe a stressful conversation, and then for some reason the person like leaves the room to go to the bathroom. And then we just notice how tight the body is. And it's just so easy then, you know, to go back. I mean, we may end up being stressed as soon as the person comes back in the room. But it's just, it's so easy to release that. Because we see, you know, there's a moment of faith like, honey, it doesn't need to be this way. And that's such an empowered moment. The heart is empowered like, oh, I can actually do something that's skillful. I can let the shoulders drop. I can soften the belly. So just even on this really basic level, we know this experience. You may not have thought about it this way, but I think it's fair to say we all know the experience of suffering followed by a moment of confidence. It doesn't need to be this way. This is what the Buddha says about this. He says, What is the ripening of suffering? When someone is overcome and one's mind is obsessed by suffering, either one sorrows and laments and beating one's breast, one weeps and becomes distraught, or else one undertakes a search externally. Who is there that knows one word, two words, for the cessation of suffering? I say that suffering either ripens in confusion or in search. So one of the things we can catch is that when the mind is being triggered to react, to resist, to deny, you know, some contracted state, you want to notice that what propels that, or what uh, supports that stress is what the Buddha calls wrong attention, unwise attention. It's like the mind is attending to the unpleasantness of something and thereby being confused by it. And like one of the instructions we get a lot from Saida Utejaniya, this uh, well-known Burmese uh, monk who's been teaching now more and more in the States, is it's often not helpful to just focus on pain. Because pain is the problem, you know, just this unwise attention to pain is the trigger for aversion to arise. So why would we, we want to be pushing the aversion button over and over and over again? Now, this is subtle, but there's a difference between opening to pain and um, opening to the compulsion to be averse to the pain and really opening, knowing the mind that's knowing the pain, knowing that pain is being known, and just focusing on the pain. Because that's oppressive. So we want to, we have to, of course, be aware of the pain. It's there. But it's not like we can use this uh, willpower to, you know, that's called suppressing or uh, 
managing the pain by sort of that uh, almost physical handling of the pain, like I'm just going to be there with it. But what we really want to understand is cause and effect, how the awareness of pain tends to lead the mind to do something and to see that as a natural process and to see that it doesn't always have to be that way that there can be the compulsion to react to the pain without the reaction so we need to broaden the awareness to include the mind that's knowing the pain knowing the stressful experience in the mind or the stressful difficult experience in the body so there are two conditions for suffering to condition faith there has to be a clear awareness that there is suffering no denial and this compassion for our well-being and one has to have some teachings some uh, instruction that the pain the difficulty doesn't need to be a problem otherwise it just feels appropriate to bear down with difficult experience like just to get through it just to survive hope that it changes distract ourselves all of those inefficient strategies that actually end up reinforcing the experience of stress come because of a lack of faith you know we don't get it as much in western buddhism but the Buddha, as a human being like us, who, uh, you know, as the story goes, realized the end of suffering, as, and also is true with the fully enlightened disciples of the Buddha and other beings that came to understand the same thing, but it's uh, the Buddha as this archetype of a human being who is completely free from the experience of mental suffering not physical pain but mental suffering is really important and uh, in some circles they'd say it's a prerequisite for doing the practice because how can we actually do the practice unless we think it works so to have some faith that somebody has done this practice and gotten good results you see it really is important to have that confidence at least to be open to that possibility Otherwise, when we're sitting, you know, and we're cultivating this open awareness, this mindful presence, and we encounter difficult experience, if we don't have that faith, we're going to assume it's totally appropriate to do what we've always done with pain, to manage it, to get by. We don't bring a new, a creative mind to the experience of pain. We just bear down and, you know, however we've been conditioned to relate to pain. And this is true not just for beginners, but it's true for people who have been practicing for a long time, including myself. I can speak from experience that you know, most of the time, the way I relate to mental and physical discomfort is not skillful. And that we can use one of the downsides of tranquility is you can use tranquility to manage pain. But it's not uprooting the tendency to suffer. It's just getting by. In the same way that you can manage pain by getting out of poverty and having a lot of money to, you know, have good food and a safe place to live and a car that starts in the winter. And that's another way to manage pain. There are a lot of ways to manage pain, but we haven't we haven't created a mind or a heart that's immune from suffering we've only uh, uh, sort of put it off for a while you know until conditions change and we can't avoid whatever we've been avoiding because somebody comes and takes away our wealth or we get old or inevitably things will change so the reason why the Buddha didn't just teach tranquility as a as a practice because there are moments when the mind is really tranquil when it feels very free and in that experience in that really tranquil experience there's a very real 
experience of freedom. The mind is free from afflictive states of mind, from greed and aversion. But the freedom is temporary. It's dependent on the tranquility. And when that tranquility goes away, if somebody insults us, we can get really tight. Or if somebody takes something that we think is ours, we can get really tight. We can really suffer. I don't know if anybody, before we go on, has any comments about this point of suffering leading to faith. Because I think the rest is pretty intuitive when you look at this transcendent origination, just in case you don't have the sheet in front of you. So we're going through these, you know, flashing in and out of moments of suffering, mind and body, and this aggregate of suffering, this response of getting tight. Mind and body having the experience, and part of the mind and body is this process, this activity of getting tight due to the experience of the mind and body. There's mind and body experience, and the mind and body's response is to get tight, and mind and body experience, and the mind and body's experience to get tight. And because the mind and body is getting tight, it's conditioning the next moment of the mind and body experience. So it's propelling itself on and on, and then we get some information that, hey, there was this guy who lived a long time ago, or hey, there's this teacher we know about who's saying it doesn't have to be this way, that there is a way out. And it has to do with how we relate to the, to the experience of suffering. What is the relationship to suffering? Is there any comments about uh, faith, confidence, and how your mind relates? Yeah, Bob. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, so, so, faith, is, is it, I mean, I, I, I heard you at one point say something like it's an understanding that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, yeah. I know Sharon defines it, Sharon Salzberg in her book calls it something like uh, what you place your heart upon, that which you place your heart upon. So, so is it, I mean, is faith something that, that I can begin to understand purely through meditation, or do I need to understand the teachings and the framework of Buddha to? I mean, I know that's not a question that you yeah. answer, but I'm just trying to work on the way to Well, I think you need a little bit, I think we all need a little bit of information. How much, there's probably a lot of debates about how much information you need, but I don't think it's a lot of information. We need, like in Tibetan Buddhism, it's a big deal, this pointing out. But, uh, yeah, the teachings are important. They're sort of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha doesn't exist, but the teachings exist. And the teachings are saying, you know, cultivate this balance. But it's more than just the balance. It's cultivate this balance and see that the tendency to react, all the different ways the mind is inclined to react, see that as a natural process instead of as self. So we're, we're, we're learning, we're, that's the sort of seed instruction, to be balanced. And then with that balanced attention, that calm, balanced attention, see everything as a movement of nature, as an impersonal movement. So that, that shifts then our relationship to the dukkha, to the suffering. Because now we're seeing the arising of pain and the passing away of pain as a natural movement instead of something that's personal. When we take it personally, then we want to respond in a personal way. So I was. Uh, this has been a really good karma in this piece. Of, but I, 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 I have not followed all of it intellectually, but experientially, there been some really good moments. And um, this morning, in my office, noticed uh, just a little tinge of, of self-loathing, um, and my reaction was laughter, and it sort of disappeared. I think of that as sort of a little bit of faith in action. Yeah, I yeah. After and, and I don't know what happened after that. Well, no, I do know what happened after that. I feel pretty good. Yeah, that's a good example, I think, because, I mean, you can just break that down, and, and you might actually, Bob, be able to break it down, even in, in smaller increments about how that all unfolded. Like, even before 
the arising of the self-loathing, you know, what were the supporting conditions for that? And then at what point, you know, did, did the mind at some point, was there any moment where the mind was getting identified? Or right from the beginning, from the very first of that arising, did the mind sort of see it as an impersonal, conditioned response to whatever was before? And because it wasn't self, it was sort of funny. I mean, I, I think I, probably a lot of us do, laugh many times a day at the different patterns that arise and how ridiculous it is. I mean, being along in the practice doesn't mean ridiculous patterns don't arise. It just means that more often we see them and even are entertained by them. You know, and, and, and are hopefully a little bit grateful, too, that we're no longer totally identified in acting out these things, which would be so destructive if we were to do that. And uh, part of that laughter is just the lightness, the freedom from not having to be that self-loathing person. You know, it's like a fork in the road. You could go, in the past, maybe you did go down that road. And, yeah, when the, when the, when the conditions are just right, yeah, when we're not, not enough clarity, not enough balance to catch it. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, Ollie. I have an insight and a question. And one of the things that struck me in the last week or so is that, I don't know, how do you know, I was journaling or something, and it occurred to me that my life works so much better when I'm not in it. <laughs> and, and that's really, and I think kind of this is somewhat about, it's like when I'm not in it, meaning I'm not taking ownership, I'm not taking sides, I'm not having have this big investment in things. And we know that intellectually, I mean, the, there's some Christian mystics, too, that had things related to that around prayer, like God can't enter unless I'm not there. This is one line from one of the Christian mystics. And, uh, but so the, the real question is then, how do, we, how do we allow that to fall away? And that's the very poignant question each moment in our sitting and in daily life practice. So, but especially in our sitting because the, the simple conditions, it just, it just stands out more. And whether you're doing mindfulness of the breath or just a more open attention practice, you'll notice so clearly the presence of the self trying to do the practice, trying to be steady with the breath or whatever it might be. And... Uh, and how do, you, how do we allow that to fall away? How do we stop creating that? Because, of course, wanting to do the practice right can be exactly the cause for that unnecessary contraction and everything that it sets in motion. But being negligent or not caring isn't necessarily the answer either. So there's a, it, it really has to be an act of wisdom. Like the mind has to see what it's doing. This is the, what the Four Noble Truths talk about. When we get really intimate with the experience of dukkha, we begin to see what the mind is doing that's setting in motion. That's the cause. So that we actually have to see what the mind is, the activity of the mind, the activity of taking the experience personally, seeing it from a, with a particular lens. It has to be seen before it can be released. And that's the real trick. And if that's really hard for us, it's for two reasons, but usually it's more of this first, not the second reason. The first reason that, and the most likely reason we can't see that clearly, is because the mind's not calm enough. The second reason is we don't have the right information. But generally, when the mind is really calm, we really see what's actually because as I mentioned a few minutes ago when the mind is really calm really steady it has a temporary freedom from neurotic afflictive states of greed and aversion so then if there is any greed and aversion like taking things personally is greed and aversion it's just another name for greed and aversion so if it's operating it will be in contrast to the calm it just stands out 
So it's not like we need a lot of information to detect it. It's really apparent. And that's why there have been a lot of wise beings who haven't had done a lot of study. And even people like Ajahn Chah, you know, really didn't encourage a lot of study. Just wanted people to practice being mindful and to live their life in a mindful way so that concentration, the steadiness grew and deepened slowly and became really resonant. It wasn't dependent on sitting, although they did a lot of sitting, but it was uh, being supported by all of their daily life activities. And then they got, they got really tranquil as they lived their life. And so they could see hundreds and hundreds of times when the mind selfed, you know, and saw that as a, in such contrast to the calm, the peace of the mind. And then it became really clear that this is unnecessary and the abandoning, the letting go, just happens with that clarity, out of that clarity. don't think there's anything to learn. Now, I generally, I'm, I'm totally with you on those points. <laughs> but, but I also, there's a place for um, allowing suffering to arise so that we can learn about how to be with unpleasant experience without suffering. So there's two ways to avoid suffering. Avoid things that cause the mind to contract, like being cold. And discovering how the mind doesn't need to contract even when it is cold, even when it is experiencing something really unpleasant. This, this last training takes care of us no matter the conditions, right? So now we don't have to put coats on. We still may freeze to death, but there wouldn't be any mental suffering in that experience. And that just might ha- end up happening to us. That may be how we die, you know. But wouldn't it be nice if that's how we're going to die, you know, freezing to death, it would be really nice for the mind not to be constructing unnecessary mental suffering around that experience of dying. I mean, we're all going to die one way or another anyway. And so by doing this other training, we're training the heart to be free when things are difficult. Difficult because we're afraid we're going to lose something we like, or difficult because we're receiving something we don't like, something's happening that we don't want to happen. So that's like, for example, Ollie, we sit a little bit longer than we're comfortable. You know, so if you're comfortable sitting for 30 minutes, sit for 40 minutes. And we sit a little longer than we're comfortable so that as the body becomes uncomfortable, then we get to practice. We've decided not to move. So there it is. We could move, but then we'll never get this opportunity to see how the mind can relate to physical pain without constructing mental suffering, without any resistance. Even though it's actually painful to be sitting, the mind isn't disturbed by physical pain. And that's an important lesson to learn. So so you you can pick where you're going to train. You know, skip one meal a week and you just train like all the... Well, why can't I eat? Well, because it's really interesting to look at the fear and the sensations that arise when I don't eat one meal that I'm expecting to eat or usually eat. You know, so we do all these different things, but it's really in the service of learning. It's not to um, punish ourselves in any way. But we, we need to be wise about it. There's no point in renouncing something that causes a lot of discomfort if we're not going to learn anything from it. You know, that's, that just seems like brutality. No, then. Uh, do you have trained uh, therapies? That would be very high goal or something. Can you learn 
how to go without that meal a day or learning how to go without coffee or learning how to go without so many of the things that we in our, our American middle class are used to having. In other words, eliminating so much of the unnecessary aspects of our lives. So real austerity in the sense of but, but it all depends on how you relate to it because it could it could be a cause for a lot of pride it could be a cause for a lot of repression or it could be a cause for a lot of wisdom and freedom the joy of renunciation well actually the whole practice is that way you know it's like discovering the joy of letting go the external letting goes, like letting go of possessions or letting go of needing this much of that or that much of this, that's very useful to experiment with in, you know, in terms of the Buddhist training. But the more profound kind of letting go is letting go of mental constructions. Like even, even in the experience of samadhi, um, like being with the breath or being with sensations, it's a profound renunciation. It's a profound austerity in the, in the best sense of the word to, for that period of time to not pick up. It's another example like what Ali was saying. Why, why can't we think about tomorrow? Why can't we think about the past? Well, yeah, we can think about the past, but we're choosing to not pick it up. You know, you might be able to afford a Hummer, but you're choosing not to get a Hummer. You know, you're choosing not to have a car. Lynn doesn't have a car. So that's a renunciation. Now, the question is, in terms of our practice, are we willing to let go of our thoughts for 30 minutes? Because that's a much more profound renunciation to realize that we don't need to be conceptualizing. We don't need to be identified with thoughts to really put that down. We don't even need to be um, established in a sense of self. And then we begin to taste the joy of that letting go. In the same way that we can feel the joy of not needing a lot of stuff, like when you go backpacking and you get by with a little and you realize how pleasant it is <laughs> not to have to decide what TV show you're going to watch or what you're going to eat. Um, in the same way, you know, that joy of simplicity, there's a, a, a real joy of simplicity of letting go. The Buddha somewhere said, patience is the greatest austerity. That, that willingness to be there in that simple place. And of course, initially when we're in that simple place, the mind, the, the momentum of the mind is feeling a great loss. It misses its thoughts. It misses its worries. It misses its hopes and dreams. It misses all of that. So that's that austerity. It's like we're sticking with it because we don't believe we don't want to feed that beast that always needs more thoughts or needs more possessions or needs a bigger house or needs whatever we think we need. We trust, we trust the direction of letting go. And so we're willing to develop that austerity of patience. We're just being with what's simple and ordinary. Well, and I think that it's much more difficult to practice austerity if one would want to practice radical simplicity much more difficult to practice that than I'm talking about material simplicity. As an individual, even as an individual within a Buddhist community, than to practice it with the community who's doing it, because the momentum, as soon as we walk out the, of these doors, the momentum is so powerful that it carries the individual along, regardless of what our practice has been up to now. I think it's a little bit like Chikang Han describes the Sangha. The Sangha is where we actually, as our strength, our community is our strength. And when we leave the Sangha, we're like, the lions are there and all just gobble us down. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. That's why, like Lynn the other night was announcing she has a couple of rooms in her, is it a duplex or a big house? Yeah. Yeah. And is looking for like minded people because it makes a big difference. Uh, what we surround ourselves with. I'm going to finish up this chart, but uh, feel free to pipe in. So we move from suffering to joy, then the next one is from, I'm sorry, from suffering to faith, and then from faith to joy. 
And so let's reflect about how that works in our own experience. How is it that the experience of faith or confidence, and in this case it's confidence that there is, not theoretically, but there is here and now a release or a possibility of release from stress. And you can imagine the kind of energy that comes, that that inspiring energy that comes, and what that allows the mind to do is to apply itself. Right, the mind is able to apply itself, in a sense, to the present moment. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, faith stirs up the energy to actualize the ideal. Because when our faith isn't strong, we don't feel like checking it out. But when we have a lot of confidence, we're willing to check it out. Check out, like, the present moment. To start over again in our practice. To be interested in what's coming and going in the practice. And so, the joy, there's a joy, and this is similar to this um, simplicity that Lynn was talking about. When the mind applies itself to the problem at hand, which is suffering and the end of suffering, there's a radical simplicity. You know, the mind is now just concerned with the present moment happening and not its thoughts about life. You know, because our life has its dimensionality of the past and the future and who I am and it has this big scope but all of a sudden we're applying ourselves to this particular present moment reality suffering and the end of suffering here and now not theoretically for Mark as a person but in this mind moment and that's a joyful experience and joy then leads to rapture because as the energy of the mind gathers itself in the present moment there, it's an intensification of, atten- of attention and it really builds the energy and so we go from joy to rapture or you could, rapture could be defined as joyful interest the five senses come alive right because now there's a raptness with the attention and the mind becomes Unwavering, just there, nothing being missed. And it's like you felt this, I'm sure, at different times in your life when something really interesting happened. I always use the example of like a strange creature you've never seen before comes your way. And the mind just gets so still and so present and so interested. And you'll notice you'll feel high after that, like maybe you see a moose for the first time. And, you know, you're just standing still. You're partly afraid and partly interested. And then eventually the moose wanders off. And you'll feel really high from that. And it's not like you actually get high from a moose. There's nothing chemical about moose that makes us high. But that it's that rapt attention that does that. And because that rapture is so engaging, is so pleasant, it's so intense, it, it basically takes away the, uh, the kind of hungry, restless energy of the mind. And so the mind slips deeper and deeper into tranquility. It diffuses the uneasiness of the heart because the heart has something that's so full so real, so meaningful in a sense, that it loses its hunger for things being other than they are. And that's really the definition of tranquility. Tranquility is not needing things to be other than they are. It's a contentedness with the present moment. Uh, A non-contentious relationship with things as they are. So we're tranquil. The mind is at ease with things. Tranquility leads to happiness. Generally, uh, <coughs> the way that I heard this described is, uh, Trumpa Rupsha has a great line. He says, rediscovering our basic sanity for happiness. But where joy is generally arises because of a specific experience that we really like, happiness is more generalized. It's like from that tranquility, <clears throat> the happiness is, and the contentedness of that tranquility, it's more like a basic trust of the moment. It's like, 
oh, I trust this life. Like I can have a, a calm, peaceful relationship because I trust it. I'm not mistrusting, acting on mistrust. Sometimes this happiness, sukha, is translated as bliss. And then from happiness to concentration, of course, when we really trust the moment, of course, there's going to be stillness, the concentration. Because when we really trust the moment, the mind doesn't have a compulsion to go anywhere. So the stillness isn't imposed. It's a natural, organic stillness. The stillness arises out of all of these conditions. So, in a way, this is an unflappable concentration. Not something that somebody is doing, somebody is making happen, but it arises naturally out of the joy, the rapture, the tranquility, the happiness, the stillness. And remember the image that the Buddha used of the rain falling high up in the mountain and filling the clefts and little ponds. And so think of it this way, that, that experiencing suffering, having this confidence that doesn't have to be this way. This is not guaranteed. Being a feeling contracted, feeling burdened by life, doesn't have to be this way. And this is really essential. This seed of faith for daily life practice, it's really essential. So that when we're moving about the day and we, you know, somebody doesn't treat us the way we want to be treated or something, we hear something in the news that pushes our buttons and we're all of a sudden a suffering being, we need that faith to intervene. It doesn't need to be this way. I know it seems like I should be tight, but I know it doesn't need to be this way. And then that's that drops falling high up. And the more we maintain that, the more that joy arises. Like, there's a possibility of being free. And that allows the mind to really apply itself to the present moment. The rapture builds, tranquility, the ease and contentedness of being uh, sort of dropping the restless neurotic tendencies of the mind, really being on the path in those moments. That's what we mean by being on the path. There's rapture, there's tranquility, there's happiness. The mind becomes more still. And in that stillness, we can't help but see things as they are. So concentration to knowledge and vision of things as they are. Seeing the three characteristics. Sometimes you talk about it in that way. It refers to the deep seeing that is done in insight meditation. Direct understanding of mind and body, rise and fall, three characteristics of suffering, impermanence, and non-self, not self. So seeing things as they are, so the short version of this is seeing everything as nature, then leads to disenchantment. Disenchantment means that this doesn't have anything to do with me. Now that, it doesn't sound right saying it that way. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody. The whole notion of the experience that we've been having, having to do with you or me or anybody, was wrong from the beginning. It's always been wrong, will always be wrong. So a moment of disenchantment is that intuition beginning to build in the mind that whatever it is that's being known, it doesn't have to do with anybody. So the heart, the mind, the one that's knowing is, is totally willing to leave it alone because it doesn't have to do with anybody. So that's the beginning of disenchantment. Disenchantment leads to dispassion, sort of a more profound letting go. No, I'm not done yet. I've got five minutes. I'm just trying to remember some of the distinctions between disenchantment and, uh, and uh, dispassion. Having seen the reality of samsara clearly in the previous stages, one loses interest in all objects of desire. 
So that's really the definition of this passion is the realization of the mind, the heart, free of desire. Now I mentioned you can have moments with tranquility, deep states of concentration where desire has been suppressed for the mind. And you'll know this feeling of great dispassion. It's actually the definition of the fourth jhana, the stage of absorption, when the mind, like the earlier stages of concentration, the mind experiences something that's really pleasant. But in this fourth stage of concentration, pleasantness doesn't make sense anymore. The mind, as it becomes more refined and more peaceful, it has to abandon the notions of pleasant and unpleasant. Because the notions of pleasant and unpleasant are inherently irritating for the mind. Just to have to distinguish between what's pleasant and unpleasant. So the fourth stage is defined as a mind uh, that's characterized by equanimity. The peace of a mind free of greed. Free of seeing things in terms of good and bad. Pleasant and unpleasant. It's just what it is. So that is a more refined happiness or more refined state than states of like really strong, pleasant experience. Which we you know, we normally think of ecstasy, ecstatic states as sort of the highest kind of happiness. But in the Buddhist uh, description of states of concentration, they're the earlier states of concentration where we have the rapture, a lot of a lot of energetic joy in the mind and body. And then it starts quieting down and then more contentedness and ease until even that really pleasant contentedness and ease falls away and it's just stillness, just peace. So that's the dispassion and the dispassion then leads on to liberation. The destruction, so liberation is not just a temporary release, like in deep states of concentration, you have, you're free, the mind is temporarily free from uh, qualities or tendencies that agitate the mind. But this kind of liberation is defined by the, uh, the agitating forces, the tendency for the mind to pick up greed and aversion, or the cankers, the different afflictive qualities, tendencies, is, have, have been uprooted. So it's not just that the mind is temporarily free, that the mind is uprooting, you know, in the initial states of liberation, the mind is beginning to uproot the tendency of the mind to go back to greed, to get it caught up in greed, to get caught up in aversion. And then, as it's said, at least in the tradition, you continue with your practice, and someone like the Buddha then is someone who's completely uprooted all of the tendencies for the mind to fall back into greed and aversion. So that's the definition of a fully enlightened being, an arahat or a Buddha, is somebody that has uprooted all of the tendencies of their mind towards greed, anger, and delusion. And that process again is cultivating the stillness of mind in the way that I've described and then with that stillness of mind seeing things as they are seeing the impersonal natural unfolding of causes and conditions leads to disenchantment the heart doesn't see it in terms of mind, me or mine uh, you know, I, me or mine and so it feels disenchanted with experiences coming and going disenchantment leads to experience of dispassion the mind realizes a mind. The mind knows the mind without greed. And it understands that. Understands it in such a way that it doesn't go back to greed. doesn't go back to taking things personally. And that's the, you know, the description of liberation. And it's 9 o'clock. So may it be so. For all of us and for all beings. Now, the real key, of course, is, is not just to see this as an inspiring set of teachings, but to bring it alive in our own experience. And not to feel like, well, 
that doesn't apply. You know, somehow it doesn't apply for us. But it really does apply, and it's important to realize that we've already have had experiences of intense suffering, and we've already had have had experiences of relative liberation, where the mind has seen with whatever stillness it had, it became disenchanted with the activity that it was involved with. I mean, how many times have we seen relatively clearly the activity of our mind enough to be disenchanted with it? Like, I don't really need to do that again. It still may have some momentum, but right? We know that experience, and we know the feeling of dispassion, at least around that specific thing. Like, that has been burnt out. You know, and we literally don't go back to it anymore. Whatever it was, you know, certain kinds of relationships or certain kinds of thoughts or certain content, we just don't pick it up anymore because it has been so thoroughly burnt out through clear, wise attention, seeing things as they are. So this dynamic is just who we are. It's not like we have to sort of acquire a new dynamic. This dynamic of suffering leading to suffering and suffering leading to faith and joy and onward to dispassion, this is already at work in our lives. So, instead of may it be so, may it continue, be, continue to be so. <laughs> so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words, take a breath together. I do have a couple of announcements for the group. Susan and Jenny and Laurie are retiring from their wonderful work guiding the community through the huge renovation of our old parking lot into our beautiful garden. And so after almost five years, uh, we're looking for a new set of garden leaders. So if anybody here is interested in digging in for at least a year, um, and you can do, of course, more than one year, but for at least a year to take the reins and organize the volunteers to maintain the garden, keep it watered, maybe do a few new things, um, let us know in the office. You can sign up for the next course on the 10 Parmes, which will begin in two or three weeks. I'm forgetting now. Anybody know? Two weeks? And uh, if you're interested in being a program host, are you willing to organize a program host again, Dave? You can talk to Dave tonight or the first week. Um, a reminder again, there is an experienced yogi retreat for people who have been practicing for five years and have done three residential retreats or more. On the last weekend in March, I'll be leading that. It's uh, really set up for experienced practitioners to uh, connect with other experienced practitioners and to practice together Friday night, all day Saturday here, till 9 at night, and then a little bit on Sunday morning, ending at 10 a.m. Santi Carlos coming in just another week and a half. Keep that in mind. He's teaching Friday night, workshop on Saturday, a program on Sunday afternoon for the Mindfulness and 12-step community. Judith Regeer will be here Thursday night. I'll be doing a half-day retreat on Saturday. I want to, again, give a plug for Larry Yang, uh, really hoping that a number of our leaders and community members will join him for his programs, especially for the Sunday afternoon talk on community and around issues of inclusivity and diversity. Um, but take a good look at what Larry will be teaching that first weekend in April. Um, is that, that's that Easter weekend, is it? No, it's the one before. It's the one before or one after? is Easter weekend. Yeah, so there is coming the following week, uh, weekend. Any other announcements people have? April Residential Retreat is open for registration. Go find something in your email if you're on the mailing list. Thanks, Scott. And TCBC, I know, has started their registration for Kamala and Steve's retreat. And uh, Ajahn Chanako will be doing his residential retreat the third week in... Uh, um, 
July, an eight-day retreat. Anything else? Yeah, then. Anything else? Thanks, everyone. See you in a couple of weeks, or many of you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.